Hello, you are listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This Advent and Christmastide, we are going to consider together the great O Antiphons. We know them today in the famous hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, but they date back as far as the 6th century and by the time of the 8th century were widely used in the liturgies of the seven days that led up to Christmas as sort of an Advent within Advent. Each verse highlights for us part of what we long for in the first and second coming of Jesus, and therefore part of what we are given in the gift of Jesus. It's our hope that these sermons will both help you prepare for and to celebrate the gift of Jesus. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoy this sermon. God bless. Lord, we uh, do sing out your praises this morning, singing hail to this newborn king, God among us, God in the flesh, God Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, we pray now that you'd shine the light of your glory in our hearts, that we'd see you as lovely and worth all of our praise. God, speak. Speak now, Lord. Teach us, move within us a greater love for you. Wonderful to be together. Wonderful to gather together with the cold outside, the warmth, hopefully, of one another, a little bit of whatever warmth these candles give off, and our uh, radiant heat that has been working nonstop throughout the day. Um, It's wonderful to gather together and to hear scripture from others' voices, and it's really wonderful to hear one another sing. I think we all know uh, the power of songs. One of the most lovely things about music is that it can sort of transport us and it can bring us to certain times and places and people. I think some songs you can smell. Um, They have certain rhythms and the cadences of the notes, the beats, they transport us. We all know the power of a song uh, to lift us up. to sit with us when we're down in the depths of despair. We know that there are songs that are made for summer. And there are songs that you should not sing in summertime. There are great seasonal songs. And our season, the season we're in right now, Christmas time, is just full of them. I mean, there is just something right, I think, at a Christmas party about hearing rocking around the Christmas tree. And, uh, and having mistletoe in the song, right? That just fits a party. There's a place for it. Um, Thursday was the place when I think all of us, Thursday morning, were singing all together like we are tonight. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Hoping that the rain would not come. Yet our hopes were dashed. Um, so many of us know the appropriateness of listening at times to Elvis croon. I'll have a blue Christmas. Because we actually know the distance, right? I mean, my family's over in Washington State, and we know the sadness of that. We know the sadness of an empty seat that was once filled in our houses. There's an appropriateness and a transportation that happens in singing and in song as we gather together. Some songs are entirely confusing, though. Some songs, I, I think, are just sort of disorienting. A bunch of us caroled on Wednesday evening around the neighborhood 
And of all times, because I've sung this song throughout my whole life, we, were, we had caroled sort of around this part of the neighborhood, and we were making our way the wrong way up green. We were on the sidewalks, don't worry, most of the time. And we were actually turning on Burbeck to go down to Linden Terrace to sing down outside of Linden Terrace. And it struck me right as we were turn, making that turn right there that, um, well, because we were singing the song, I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas. We were singing that song. And I'm thinking, what, what in the world? Three ships sailing into Bethlehem makes absolutely no sense. The closest body of water is 20 miles away, and it's the Dead Sea. There's not even ships in the Dead Sea. What are we singing? So I did what I do. I looked it up. I Googled it Thursday morning in my confusion. And I found that the most common explanation for the three ships sailing in to Bethlehem is that they weren't sailing into Bethlehem, but they were carrying the remains of the relics of the three magi into Cologne, Germany, that is on the Rhine River, that's about uh, 298 kilometers, if you want to Google that also, to the nearest port uh, around the Hague in, in um, Belgium. You'd have to sail up the Rhine River, which I don't think you would do all the way to Cologne. You'd have to go around the Strait of Gibraltar through the Mediterranean. What is, what is that song singing about? How disorienting. I don't buy that. There's another explanation, and this explanation has to do with it being uh, a reference to the, the coat of arms of King Wenceslas, the, the duke or the king of uh, Bohemia in the ninth century, 900s, 10th century, um, because his coat of arms was a deep blue and uh, emblazoned on it was three gold ships. That's all I read. I was like, that doesn't, that doesn't really help me out here. What is going on? This is so disorienting. And then finally, the other explanation I heard was that it, ships refer to camels. And there's supposedly three camels because there's three wise men. But actually, we don't even know that there's three wise men. We just know there's gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that wise men are plural. So there could be two or there could be ten. And I don't even know why you would call a camel a ship. So I'm just totally disoriented reading about this. Um, but it might be the best explanation that we have. And all that kind of bothered me. Um, except that when I was sitting in it, I was sitting in the story of God coming among us at Christmas. I was reflecting on it. I thought, how... How disorienting is just the entire story? That as soon as we start to actually sit in the story of Christmas, we go, all of the nice singing and beautiful decorations and all that we uh, celebrate with our houses being so lovely and roast meats and stuff like that, they don't fit necessarily because the story that we have it as it's presented in Matthew and Luke for us is entirely disorienting for the people that are there. It's a disoriented world. It's a world that is shook up. Um, it's true, right? The, the angels heralded glad tidings of, of great joy that should be to all men. And so it's appropriate that we sing songs like joy to the world, the Lord's come, and good Christian men rejoice. Um, those songs, they're appropriate. But I want you to just l let me list for you all the disorienting things that happen in the birth narratives in Luke and Matthew. First, we have an old priest. His name is Zechariah. He becomes mute and is mute for his entire uh, the child's gestation. 
That's so disorienting to not be able to talk. It's weird to be in a world, maybe a place, another country where nobody understands what you're saying. It's hard. It's hard to be mute. Elizabeth, his wife in her old age, she becomes pregnant. And what the text tells us is this little detail. She kept it to herself for five months. That's a weird little detail to include. But of course, what Luke is telling us is that nobody would believe this old woman. You're pregnant? She'd be mocked at. She'd be scoffed. She'd be the scorn of the, the community. But at five months, you can see I'm not making this up. How disorienting. Um, the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary in Nazareth. And the first thing that we hear is that she's greatly troubled. Of course she's greatly troubled. How many people have had an angel show up to them? Hands? Yeah, totally disorienting. Um, Mary and Elizabeth, they see each other when they both have child, their, 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 their children within them. And what we read is that their, their babies leap. That never happened in my family. Weird. Um... Mary sings a beautiful song of scattering the proud and bringing down the mighty. Joseph is going to, to do away, to put away um, quietly, it says, because he was a righteous man, his fiancée, Mary, because he knew how people became pregnant, and he knew he had nothing to do with it. That's disorienting. Caesar Augustus, over in Rome, can just make a decree and all the people in all the small towns of Israel have to obey his word. He's not the king that's supposed to be on the crown over the Jews and over Israel. Joseph and Mary, of course, have to make the long trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem. When she's nine months pregnant. Because they have to obey this Caesar so far away. What timing. How disorienting. Of all things, think about it. They're away from their parents, their friends, their midwife. And it's at that time when they're away from all these people that could help them out that her water breaks. What timing. And we all know this little detail. There's no room. There's no room at the end. Angels show up to shepherds and what we hear again is that they're filled with great fear. Um, wise men come from the east. We don't know if there's three of them. I already said that. But there's wise men that come from the east. And of course, what they do is they look in Jerusalem. Because that's where a king would be. And they find the king in the backwaters towns. How disorienting. Of course, Herod, Herod, Herod then plots against the wise men. And then finally, at the end of all these birth narratives, what we hear is that Herod has all the boys surrounding Bethlehem and the surrounding region, to and under, killed. What I'm saying to you is that for all of the glad tidings and for all of the great joy of the season, for all the delight in one another's singing and the prospect of being with family and friends in this time, there's a lot of disorientation that happens in the Christmas story. We all know the Bethlehem Hotel was far too small. The Christ child would be born in a manger. Um, we all have a sense of how 
destabilizing and disorienting this kind of thing would be for a young mother, um, for her fiancé, for Joseph. But what we're presented with in the, in the Christmas story is not just a, an inn that doesn't have room, but in a, an entire world that just seems packed full, full to the brim of stuff that isn't as it should be. It's not just one little detail. It's like the whole thing. Everything's off. Everything's disoriented. A laughing priest and a mocking community. The hints, the possibility of infidelity, of cheating. Politics, political systems that are all awry, twisted, distorted from how they should be. Politicians doing pet projects. Ever hear of that? Wars that have taken place. The kings are on the throne where they ought not to be. Holy family, the holy family themselves, displaced from their home, being refugees in, of all places, Egypt. Why would they go back to Egypt? But things were so off. Hearts filled with fear. Murder and violence happening on mass scales. This is actually the Christmas story as it's presented for us in Luke and in Matthew. The disoriented life. Where are we? What's happening? A virgin mother, a laughing uncle, three ships in Bethlehem. What? A Roman census? Why? Does God, if he's there at all, have any clue what's going on in this world? What's the deal? Disorientation. One of the things that I love about the Christmas songs, though, the songs that we sing together, the Christmas hymns and the carols, is that a lot of them actually come out of uh, experience of this world, the disoriented life that we experience now. Um, let me tell you just about a couple of them, a couple of my favorites. One of my favorites is Good King Wenceslas. A bunch of us sung it to a small group of people outside of Shady McGrady's on Wednesday. Um, where we sang, give them, give me flesh and give me beer instead of wine, right? Because um, that makes sense. It does when you think about it outside of Shady's. Um, but good King Wenceslas tells the story of, of course, King Wenceslas. Um, King Wenceslas uh, only lived until he was 28 years old. He died uh, prematurely, early. Um, but what's more tragic is that his father, who was a Christian, and his mother, who was not a Christian, uh, his father died when he was 12 years old. And his mother did not want to raise him because she didn't really care for him much. And so his paternal grandmother took him and raised him and taught him about Jesus. But his mother demanded him back and actually had, his, had her mother-in-law killed for it. King Wenceslas's father died when he was 12, and then his own mother killed his grandmother. When rightly, he turned 18, and, and he then was given the dukedom or the kingdom of Bohemia, what he began to do was set up what became one of the finest educational systems in the world around Bohemia. There's no wonder, actually, when you begin to sort of put pieces together, that the, the beginning of the, the, the Reformation under John Huss happened there in Bohemia. The beginning of education happened there under King Wenceslas. His life, what we know of uh, from it, was marked by a deep care and an active, active concern for the poor, which is what we sing about in that great hymn. 
But think about that. His active life in the world towards education and the care for the poor came out of his own massively disoriented youth with the killing or the death of his own father at 12 and the killing of his own grandmother by his mother's hands. Um, let me tell you about the, the great song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It was written by Henry Wordsworth Longfellow, um, a poet that hopefully many of you know. It was written in the middle of the Civil War in 1863. He was outspokenly against that war. But in 1861, right before Christmas, uh, his wife died. They'd been married for 18 years. And this is how it happened. She had cut her daughter's, younger daughter's hair, and she wanted to keep some of the locks together. And she was going to bind them together with some wax, and so she was melting some hot wax. The hot wax fell on her dress, and it caught fire. Henry was there in the room with, with her. He grabbed the rug and began to try to put it out. It, didn't, it wouldn't be put out with the rug. And so he actually tried to put it out with himself, snuff it by, with himself. Eventually it went out. But he was so badly burned on his face that all the pictures you have seen of him, he has a huge beard because he would no longer shave because it hurt so bad. His, his face was so burned. His wife was so badly burned that night, though, that she died the next morning. This is what he wrote. How inexpressibly sad are all holidays. Six months later, he wrote this. I can make no record of these days. Some of y'all have experienced that deep sadness. I don't even know what day is what and what's happened. Better leave them unwrapped, or better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me worried to a friend that his, his anxiety and his grief would put him in an asylum. Um, the sorrow of his life drowned out the peace that carols sung about, um, that carols invited him to feel. Um, he, he said this, a Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for And then, a year after he wrote those words, his son said, Father, I'm going to go without asking you to join this war. So in 1863, the beginning of 1863, his son left for the war and then actually returned only six months later because he was so badly wounded at a battle in Virginia, the Battle of Mine Run in Orange County there in central Virginia. Six months after that, Wordsworth wrote the famous poem that became this hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And probably many of you know it well enough. But the story tells, uh, the, hymn, the poem tells this story. And the author is, is repeatedly hearing through the bells and through the carols and all this as they're ringing, as they're chanting, as they're singing. What he's hearing is peace on earth, goodwill to men, in all these different ways. And this is what he writes, though, near the end. And keep in mind, this is in the context of the Civil War. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the South. Crying out about the sadness of the Civil War, the, the, the thundering cannons. And with the sound, the carols drowned. Of peace on earth, goodwill to men. War seems to, to drown out those kinds of 
sentiments. He goes on, it was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. What's he writing about? He's writing about this disoriented life, this life where, where Caesar over, over in Rome can just dictate what happens over here, where Herod can say, all the little boys, round them up and kill them, that kind of life. He's saying there's no peace on earth. But why have we gathered tonight? Why are you here? Because Jesus came into this world, this one. That's the world that he came into, the disoriented life of Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zachariah and me and you and Longfellow. It's not some make-believe world of only happy singers, shepherds that don't have to keep watch over their flocks by night because there's no wolves. Don't worry, shepherds. Women who always give birth when they want to. When there's always room in the inn. Jesus doesn't come to a world like that. We gather together because Jesus comes into our world. This disoriented world, this messy, yucky, dirty, no room for us world. Full of darkness and death and tears and sorrow world that has all kinds of reasons to fear. This is the world that Christ came into. And what's our O Antiphon this week? Some of you know that we've been making our way through this famous poem, the O Antiphons, through Advent. We're going to continue to do tomorrow and then next Sunday. And the O Antiphon, the fifth stanza of it, it says this, O day spring, brilliance of eternal light and son of righteousness, come. Give light to those who sit in darkness and under the shadow of death. Or as we often sing in the hymn. Actually, I don't have that page with me, do I? I don't have that page. Shoot. Anyway, I'm going to keep going. Because I know what I'm going to say anyway. Um. What we're saying is, oh, come day spring from on high. The day spring. Or in the Latin, the original actually is the Oriens. The eastern sun, the eastern star that comes up. God come. It's the one who shines in the darkness, the sun that comes up. It's the word, actually. Oriens is the same word that we get for the, right, orient. Or actually the word that we get for orientation. All the ancient maps, actually, they didn't have north on the top. They had east on the top. All the ancient churches, this actually, go, go to the ancient churches, they face east. Why? Because they're greeting Christ, who would come and shine in the midst of a world that is totally dark and bring his light. This is what we come and we celebrate, that Jesus doesn't come to a make-believe world, some fancy, just sort of fluffy world that we sort of have warm hearts towards when, to, to when, we, when we have seasons like Christmas. He comes into the dark world of Mary and Joseph, of murder and violence, and he orients us in the midst of darkness. 
Because what we sing actually is that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. What I'm saying is that Christmas is not sort of some religious make-believe fluff. But God coming into this world, into the disoriented places of this world, and saying, let me shine, let me give you an orientation towards God coming. Now, what I was going to end with is the final ver- uh, stanza of Longfellow's poem, and I don't have it memorized. But what he says is he says at the very end, because God has come, because of this reality, even though I'm sitting in the mess of my wife dying, of my son going off to a war that I don't even agree with, of him being injured so badly that he has to come back, of not wanting to celebrate any holidays, even though I exist in this life, there can be peace on earth and goodwill towards men because Christ did come. He did come. He came into this world. He came as the light that shines in the darkness, the day spring from on high that comes and shines in the darkness that does not overcome him. Amen? Lord, would you pray that you'd shine in the midst of uh, the darkness. Be the warmth in the cold. Lord, warm our hearts to the reality that you're not a distant God who does not know our pain and our sorrow. The effects of sin and its ugliness in the world and in our hearts. You know it all and you come for us. You know the darkness and you shine. You know the deep darkness and you come. Lord, we're thankful that the the Christmas story is not not just people filled with giving gifts, people smiling everywhere. But it's a story filled with the darkness where God comes and shines. The day spring from on high that appears and drives out the darkness. We bless you and we praise you in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons Podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.